whose power cannot be shaken, whose breath gives us life, whose death has set the captive free. His name will stand forever, lifted high for all to see. Jesus, our God, our Lord, our King. Who and brighter than a million stars, His love is shining, calling every broken heart. sure exactly what was said. I don't know if Julie wants to repeat that or not, but <laughs> apparently it was very flattering, I heard. It was, it was very, very flattering on my part. 
Anyway, uh, welcome to Carpenter's Way. Uh, if you're visiting with us, um, we stand, we don't stand. It just depends. Uh, depends on where you're at. Depends on what's going on. So uh, you don't have to stand. You can stand if you want to. Uh, but yeah, we're going to jump back into some worship here. Um, I'm going to make a t-shirt of this eventually, but don't be a spectator. Uh, join in with us. I am not skilled to understand what God has willed, what God has planned. I only know it His right hand stands one who is my Savior. I take Him at His word indeed. Christ died to save me, this I read. And in my heart I find a need For Him to be my Savior That He would leave His place on high And come for sinful man to die You count it strange, so once did I My Savior loves, my Savior lives, my Savior's always there for me. My God, He was, my God, He is, my God is always gonna be. My Savior loves, my Savior lives, my Savior's always there for me. living, dying, let me bring my strength, my solace from this spring, that he who lives to be my king, once died to be my savior, that he would leave his place on high, and come for sin So once did I Before I knew my Savior My Savior loves My Savior lives My Savior's always there for me Oh 
to who can we compare you? How can words describe you? What song is there to sing worthy of our King? You are more than we can fathom. So much larger than our spectrum. We are read in your word when the angels gather around your throne. They sing this beautiful song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. You have filled our hearts with your truth. You have set our troubled souls free And given peace that endures And the hope that one day you'll return And then forever we'll sing Holy, holy, holy He is our Lord God Almighty Together as one voice to the one and only King, and with the angels we'll sing, Holy, Holy, Holy. He is the Lord God Almighty. Who was and who is and is to come. Who was and who is 
like to stand as we read the scripture today? Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven and not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Amen. Once a sinner, now I'm clean. Once condemned, now I'm made free. He turned my darkness into light, and now I see. Once in ashes, there's beauty. Once in pieces, I'm complete. My Redeemer now resides, He lives in me.
Uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you um, for you. And thank you that you would leave heaven to die on the cross for people like us. And Lord, as we uh, come together this morning to sing songs of praise to you, and we come together to, <clears throat> to meet around the communion table and reflect on what you have done on our behalf, it is my prayer, Lord, that you would speak to us as individuals through your word. We love you, Lord, and we ask you to, uh, to take this time and use it for your glory and your purposes. And the children, as they're going to leave for GPS, we just pray that you would bless them and their teachers. And I just pray that, uh, Father, on this, this holiday weekend that we would uh, learn from you and hear from you and be changed forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. Um, we are going to be having communion in a little while. If this is... <clears throat> If you are new to Carpenter's Way, uh, Carpenter's Way invites you to join us in our communion time. Uh, we are presently using um, uh, these little communion things that we do so that you don't pass a plate and cough on it or somebody lick their finger and stick it in. And if you, if you have yet, if you did not get one coming in, if you are a child of God and you would like to participate in this room with communion this morning, uh, John is in the back. He's walking around the back. And if you'll just make eyes with him or don't make eyes with him. Let me try again. <laughs> Just raise your hand, and he'll bring it to you. And uh, while we're doing announcements, Clay, why don't you, why don't you save me for myself right here? Um, and uh, Clay Alverson has been a pastor in our church for quite a few years. He's one of our elders. And uh, the Lord has called him. He's got a full-time job, and he's got a full-time job. And uh, one of his full-time tasks is to running the men's job corps. That we, that, uh, it's a mission in, in uh, the area that uh, supports men who... Well, he can explain that at other times, but he, what they do is they train men how to find jobs, how to interview, uh, how to use a computer, but then on top of it, the core of the ministry is helping men to develop into men of God and scriptural definition of that. And so we're excited because about a year ago, he came to me and started wanting to share that he wanted to do that within our church family as well. And uh, so he's going to share with you how that will begin here pretty quick. Good morning. The, uh, the Bible study that we use is called Authentic Manhood, 33 the series. It's used all over the world, and it's six volumes, uh, six lessons in each volume, but we only do one volume at a time, and then we take a break. So six weeks, and then we take a break. You don't have to have a book. You don't have to have attended previously uh, the previous lessons. The one we're going to start this next Sunday is A Man and His Traps, and that covers a lot of things that you don't normally think of. Certainly, if... Uh, a trap can be drug addiction, it can be pornography, it can be alcoholism, but it can be football, it can be fishing, it can be a lot of things that take you away from your family and being the man that God has created you to be. And this tells you what that is. We, it, it's fo it focuses more on the life of Jesus, but it begins in Genesis. We talk about wh what, what Adam was supposed to have been doing you know, I think I know what he was doing whenever Eve took the fruit. You know, I, I, I don't think he was just, you know, counting the fruit. She was naked. He was naked. So they were naked. And uh, I, don't think, I don't think he was paying attention to what he was supposed to have been paying attention to. So, golly, have I gone to the Mark I, all School I of I feel school better about myself. I, I'm feeling pretty good right now. Keep trying to free. help you. I'm trying to help you feel out. <laughs> it's working. The world tells men how they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to do, 
And I think that changes on a daily basis depending on the news. God has a plan for men. It's, a, it's pretty simple. And we line that out in this series. Uh, starts next Sunday. We're going to meet over in the annex. Mm-hmm. Is that what we still call it that? Yeah. Over around in the back. And I encourage you guys to come. Again, you don't have to buy a book. Uh, last six weeks, we take a break. And this will give you guidance for your life. There will be no question as, what, as to what God's plan for manhood is. And it's a good plan. And ladies, you might be surprised that it's not some of the things that you might think it is. Um, the plan that Jesus laid out is, is awesome. It works. God has a plan for us. It's a, Join it's a, me. Is it a video series? Yes, it's a video series and discussion-based. There's no homework. Uh, the series does not beat men up. You know, that's, that's one of the things that I emphasize at the Men's Field House, which is Christian Men's Job Corps. This does not beat you up. It instructs you on how to be the man God planned for you to be. Thank you, Clay. So one of the things that, uh, and this is just my opinion, I don't have any science on it, I'm just watching my daughter date now, and one of the things that I think has happened with our culture is that that men have been mocked so much for the past 15 years or 20 years or longer that that they've kind of lost uh, the the biblical strength that God gave us. Uh, And this is going to address those issues. What, what did God design? And one of the things that we did, and this was an ongoing study, and Clay and I, and guys were kind of fading off, and so we began brainstorming how to do this and, and how to get more men involved. And the way that he decided to do this was in six-week segments. So if you're part of another Bible study, men, or you don't go to a Bible study, this is a six-week commitment. Uh, and then you can go, you can take a break, and then he'll start it up again a couple minutes, uh, months later. But this is a great opportunity for you to think about what biblical manhood is, and especially as it relates to addictions and different things, because we all got them. And so I just want to really encourage you to consider doing that uh, and being a part of that as well. So um, uh, also, okay, a couple more announcements. Number one, super important. We are in the middle of, and, and this is one of the things that's been affected by COVID and us not having a bulletin a physical bulletin each week. We are in the middle right now of nominating church officers. So Carpenter's Way has, uh, based upon the New Testament, we have elders that oversee the spiritual health of the church. There are seven of us. And then, uh, then there are two deacon teams that we call servant leader teams. And there is one that oversees the finances of the church. And the second group oversees the missions that we support as a church. And uh, this is the time of year. In, in every November, the only, annual, the only business meeting that we have, unless something, uh, a hiring of a pastor or the sale or purchase of property, the only business meeting we have a year is in November, the second Sunday in November, either the second or the third. On a Sunday night, we vote, uh, we vote for our church officers as well as any constitutional changes that are made and stuff like that. We are beginning our process right now to prepare for that for 2022. And uh, having said that, right now is the time, Carpenter's Way folks, we need you to be nominating people that you feel would be good on the deacon team for finances for the church. They oversee all of that. Or somebody who has a passion for mission work. Uh, We need you to nominate a person who's a member who you might think will fit in there. Or an elder. That's a seven-year term uh, who you feel uh, is eldering already that would make a great addition to our leading elder team. So uh, those are, that's a six, that's a six year term and every elder comes off uh, every six years. What we do is we have one elder we need, we need one finance team member and we need one uh, mission investment team member. So 
on the table out there, Carpenter's Way people, there's a table out in the middle. You, there's, there's little ballots. You can write your name. You can put in anybody that you think would fit those roles. And uh, if they're not members, obviously they're not qualified. If they're not saved, they're not qualified. But if they're Carpenter's Way family and you nominate, they will be prayed over. They will be discussed. And what happens is the elders will meet in two Wednesday nights to go over who you nominated and decide down who we feel God may be calling into those positions. So that's super important. So family, it's out there. I believe on the back, somebody emailed me and asked who is presently on those teams. It's on the back of those sheets. So, and uh, I, should have, I should have emailed you that, the person who, who emailed me. I'm sorry I didn't do that. But if you have any questions and you don't get to it today and you remember it tomorrow, um, if you'll email the office, we'll get you the information that you need. Uh, not tomorrow, though, because tomorrow we're going to close because it's Labor Day and we work really, really hard. So, uh, so uh, that's that. Let's see what else I have. Mm, that's all. That's all. Um, we've already prayed, so I want to jump right into it. You ready? This is going to be, this, I, I'm so excited about doing this this morning. This is all preparation for our time around the table this morning uh, uh, with communion. There once was a little Hebrew boy by the name of David. Although he, loved, he was loved by his father, he was the youngest of eight sons. So he didn't get any of the big jobs in his family. He got the little ones. All the stuff that nobody else wanted to do, he did. But by all records, he did them really, really well. He was a courageous boy. When he took care of family responsibilities, he was obedient. History says that he was incredibly handsome. But when big things came up, he really wasn't considered for those jobs. One day, all of his brothers were called off to war for the nation. They were all off battling their arch enemy, except for the young boy, who was kept at home to do the family chores. Until his father called him one day and said, hey, I want you to take this picnic to your brothers, find out how the war's going, and then come right back. Don't stay. And so he goes. And when he gets there, he meets with his brothers, and as he's feeding them what Scripture says is honey and cheese, all of a sudden he hears a guy yelling from across the field. And when he looks up to see who it was, he was facing a nine-foot, nine-inch tall guy, just under the height of a basketball hoop. He sees this nasty armored tank of a man who's mocking the warriors of his nation. But not just his warriors. This loudmouth, stinky, armored guy was also mocking their God. And that bothered this little guy named David. In fact, he started asking his brothers why they were allowing this. Why haven't you killed this guy? Why haven't you gone off to war? And as you can imagine, those of you who have younger brothers, this did not sit well with them. Made him mad. Why are you telling us this? You don't know what you're talking about. And his brothers actually told him to go home. You don't need to be here. You should be home with the sheep, they said. But instead, when they thought he was leaving, he went and talked to other army guys, military men. Why haven't you taken this guy on? Why hasn't somebody fight? If nobody else will fight, I'll fight. This little boy. Eventually, word got to the king that there was a little boy willing to fight this huge, loudmouth enemy. And so the king met with him, and the boy convinced him that he was up for the task. What he missed was that they didn't realize that the thing that had offended this little David so much, and you all know who I'm talking about already, little David, the thing that had offended him so much was that this loudmouth enemy of God, this pagan, would speak so harshly against their God, the God that had shown so much faithfulness to them. And after spending time with King Saul, 
He convinces King Saul that there's nobody else to fight this guy. You might as well let me do it. And King Saul must have relegated his mind to the fact that they were going to lose this battle. You see, the, what was taking place was when a nation was going to war against another nation, oftentimes to keep death rates low, plus the winning group could take the other nation as slaves, they would decide that they'd take their two chief military men, the best fighters in both camps, and they would let them go at each other. And whoever defeated the other, that nation would be considered the winner, and they would take the other nation's slaves. Well, no other Israeli was willing to stand up against this guy. There wasn't a Hebrew man, including King Saul, that would stand up against him. So Saul eventually let David go to battle. And what does David do? While the king offers him his armor, it didn't fit him. He goes down to the brook and he picks up five smooth stones. And here's this boy that's just wearing a cloak and he goes into battle against this huge tank of a guy. And you know the story. David takes a stone in a little leather pouch and he whips it at him. And it hits Goliath in the one place his armor doesn't cover, his forehead. Now, that didn't kill. No matter what pastors tell you, that didn't kill Goliath. The Scripture says that it knocked him out. And with his unconscious body laying there, David runs. And this is interesting, and it's very important. David didn't walk onto the battlefield. It says that he ran towards Goliath. Why? Because David wasn't confident that he would defeat Goliath. He was confident that his God would de defeat Goliath. Because he had seen, Scripture tells us, over and over again, he had seen God empower him to take on lions and bears and protect the family's wealth. He had seen God do miraculous things. And I want to remind you, this was little David. When he walked or ran onto that battlefield, his brothers must have thought, what is he doing? He's going to get us all killed. And I want to add, too, remember that on top of being the youngest, he was a poet and a harp player. But he ran into, you can laugh at that, okay? He ran into battle because he couldn't imagine somebody surviving the things that they was, he was saying about the God of Israel. David knocks him cold. But he doesn't stop running at that point. Scripture tells us that he ran right up to him and he pulled Goliath's sword out, which had to be 14 feet tall, and he lifted it up and he cut his head off. And that's how he died. Scripture tells us that he, he, he died of his head being cut off. You don't survive that kind of thing. But here's the part of the story that most of us miss because we're concentrating on the stones. It tells us that David put Goliath's head on a pole and carried it around until he could take it to the hill over, over Jerusalem, which, by the way, was not into Hebrew hands at that time. It was still owned by their enemies, and he stuck the pole in the ground so that all who lived in the town that would one day be called Jerusalem, he stuck it in the ground so that they would know God and his people are coming. Amen. What you may not know about that little David is Scripture not only says that God called him a man after his own heart, but he also said that David was a type of Christ. That's a theological term that means there's a lot of things David did that Jesus Christ would do. He was a picture of what was coming. Some of the Psalms talk about that. But what's amazing is David was foreshadowing that one day on the hill, and there are theologians who believe that the hill above, okay, little history lesson. So Jerusalem's a city that David would overthrow later when he was king. When he overthrew it, it became the headquarters of the nation of Israel, and he would also make it the central location of Yahweh worship. You guys know all that. But to do that, he had to defeat the enemies. The city of Jerusalem 
is on the side of a mountain that we know as Zion. That's where you get the name, the, the, the mountain of Zion. But one of those hillsides is called Golgotha. And it is believed by many theologians that when David takes Goliath's head, he sticks it in the ground on Golgotha, which is the same place that Jesus Christ would die, as a picture of just letting Lucifer know that the enemies of God will not live long. By all measures, David was an amazing man. In fact, as a young man, after this story, a few years go by, and God tells, God tells the prophet at that time that he is going to pick from Jesse, David's dad, so follow me, David was one of eight sons, the prophet goes to Jesse, David's father, and informs him that God is done with Saul, the first king of Israel, and he is going to pick another king, and that that king would come from his children. So one of David's brothers or himself will be the king. The father's view of David was so low that when he gathered his children around the fire for the prophet to inform them of who would be the king, David wasn't even invited. Do you remember that part of the story? Now you know how everybody felt about little Davy. He's not an impressive character. He was ruddy, red-haired, and beautiful. But he wasn't impressive. And the prophet goes to look at these young men, and the Lord tells the prophet, who has already picked one of the sons, who looked the part, that the Lord has rejected all of these. Because I don't look at the outward appearance, says the Lord. I look at the heart. In the book of Acts, it describes David and why God replaced Saul with David. And what it says in Acts 13, 22, is that I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. That's listed two places in Scripture. This is a quote from 1 Samuel, but it's also why God chose David. I mean, to have God call you that is impressive. There's not one of us in this room who know Jesus that, wish he, that would love to hear God say, that's what it looks like to love me. But everything David did, did wasn't great. In fact, some of David's biggest life decisions, even after following God as a young man, even after in the power of God taking Goliath on, even after all of that, not everything David did was great. In fact, many were downright wicked. And I want us to look at one of those as we prepare for communion this morning. In 2 Samuel 11, it tells us that in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David, now king, sent Joab, who's the commander of the Lord's armies, and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So before we get into what we're going to get into, I want this to point out that there is something very important in this opening statement of the story that you need to grasp. David was not where he was supposed to be. David was supposed to be at war. He was supposed to be doing king things, but instead, he's not. He was, he was sending somebody else to do the job that God had tasked him with. So I just want to start with a sidebar. Be where you're supposed to be. Be where you're supposed to be. If you don't want to mess your life up, be where you're supposed to be. Wives with your husbands. Husbands with your wives. If Facebook is temptation, get off Facebook. Be where you're supposed to be. 
Matthew Chandler a few years ago preached a message, and Zach and I have talked about this a lot. I think it's one of the best applications of this text I've ever heard, these few verses. And his point was, we're supposed to be tired at the end of the day. By the time we go to bed, we should have worked so hard that we're exhausted. And if we're not, the only reason we enjoy not being tired is so that we can invest in our flesh. Whether it's a movie or going out or whatever. But we're supposed to be tired. And when we're not, um, well, let's look. Late one afternoon, verse 2, after his midday rest, when he was supposed to be not even in the palace area, when he's supposed to be off at war, he's taking a nap. David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. And I want you to picture this. This is David, little David. This is David the Goliath killer. He's out there on the palace. And as he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. So he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told, that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, most of you already know where the story goes. But before we get there, there's a lot of context that I think most of us don't know. Many of you ladies just read a book that gave you a lot of the context, and it is on point. Let me tell you some things that will shock you that makes this tragic series of events even more tragic. It tells us that Bathsheba, he didn't recognize her. He didn't have his glasses on. He was wiping the sleep out of his eyes. He was in the wrong place he was supposed to be. But for whatever reason, he didn't recognize her. He sends somebody to find out who this hot woman was. And he goes and he investigates. And when he, they come back, they tell him that this is the daughter of Eliam. Now let me tell you who Eliam is. Eliam was one of David's 37 mighty men. So the fact is, the reason that she was within eyeshot of the palace is because she grew up on the wall. The people around David were his warriors and his protectors, his secret service, his palace guard. And they lived on the wall. And so if there was a problem in the king, within moments they could be there to protect him, to die for him, whatever else needed to happen. But that's how David knew his father. He was one of 37 men that David knew personally. It is reasonable to believe that David actually took care of Eliam and his wife and their new baby Bathsheba. He probably bought them a gift when she was born. David knew Bathsheba. He knew who she was. He may not have recognized her that day, but that girl grew up under his authority, leadership, and playing in his courtyard. Yes, that's sick. You all have people in your life that are like uncles and aunts to your children. This was Uncle David. It gets worse. The reason that she was with an eye shot of him now was that Uriah was one of his warriors, and he was probably one of, the, uh, one of the higher up in authority because Uriah, who is now Bathsheba's husband, actually also lives with an eye shot because that's where she was telling us that he was also a protector of the king. So this story of adultery is worse. It's the story of being a bad friend, being a bad man, having a wicked heart. This man who was supposed to be off at war, that the, that the nation of Israel still has his star on their flag, that people love to hail because we love uh, the Psalms, and we love especially Psalm 23. This guy was pretty dark in his soul. Listen to what he does. After he checks her out, after he's responsible, 
He's told who that is he's looking at. He then sends messengers to get her. Pick up the next verse. Then David sends messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Bathsheba, the one he knew, who's one of closest protectors who was willing to die for him, his daughter, and one of his guys who's off at war, his wife. David, who should have been at that war as well, decides to take one of their most precious possessions and take advantage of it. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Guess she got to the point. She was not a woman of many words. Uh-oh. This man of God, a man after God's own heart, had messed up bad. And he was about to get caught at it. Unless, well, David used all of his secret gifts that God had given him to be a great leader of the nation, and he now used him to cover up his sin. David sent word to Joab. That's the guy who was doing David's job, the general of his armies. Joab was in charge of the Israeli military. He sends a note to him, and he says, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent David, and for those of you who are sleeping through this, Uriah is the husband of Bathsheba, the woman he impregnated while her husband was off to war. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing because he was interested. Yo, Uriah, good to see you. Let's have cake. How's the war going? Who, he had to be thinking, why have you called me off the battlefield? Then he told Uriah, go home and relax where he could find his beautiful but pregnant wife who's not showing yet. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he left the palace. This is under the category of dirtbag. It gets worse. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and he asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? And Uriah replied, well, the ark and the armies of Israel, the ark of the covenant, not Noah's Ark, the other Ark. The Ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. How can I go home and wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear, I would never do such a thing. See, the problem with David right now is he actually employed a man with principles. That's the problem when you screw your life up, when you try to fix it. If you've surrounded yourself with principled men and women, they're not going to play with you. Now, Uriah has no idea what's going on. He just thinks David is being overly gracious. The problem is, to David's misfortune, Uriah is a man of honor. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David, the man of God, invited him to dinner and got him drunk. Oh, this is going to work out great. Okay? Look, take every Lifetime movie for women you've ever saw, multiply it by 10, and that's what you have here. He gets him drunk. You know, you know why he gets him drunk, right? Because drunk people have a, a at times, they, they loosen their principles. 
So now we have David, the man of God, the Goliath killer with five stones. Now we have this man of God, this, this man that's the king because he's going to obey all that God orders him to do, that God says, I want a man in, in the authority w- with my heart. Now he's actually trying to get a guy drunk so that he'll sleep with his wife so that he gets out of trouble. Verse 13. Then David invited him to dinner, got him drunk, and even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home with his wife. And again, Uriah slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Little David must have been so frustrated at this point. Uriah wasn't playing along in his little game of deceit. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. Okay, you got to picture this, okay? Three days he's been in town, not once he has even seen his wife as far as we know. The pregnant Bathsheba by the king, there's no way that she even thinks that her husband might be the father or their friends or their families. And so David says, I'm going to write a letter and I want you to take it back to Joab. He told the messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king. I'm sorry, I skipped too far. He wrote a letter, verse 14. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah, the guy who just handed you this note, on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. Lifetime movies for women. So Joab assigned Uriah a spot so, uh, to, to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy's soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Wow, you think political and military leaders are ugly in the United States. It's not new. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messengers, report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry because we we didn't win that battle. And he's going to ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know that there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? In other words, David is not going to be happy that we lost these people in this Here's what I want you to tell him. You just tell David that Uriah the Hittite was also killed. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said. And as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows to us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, gosh. Tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours one today and then one tomorrow. You just fight harder next time and conquer that city. Dirtbag. Wow. Is this sinking in? I mean, I don't really have anything to add. I mean, it's... Every part of this is disgusting. And all because he wasn't where he should have been. When Uriah's wife, you know, the one who's pregnant by King David, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives, and since she gave birth to a son. Problem solved. I mean, I just, okay, so as I was thinking about this this week, one of the things that struck me is, do you realize the optics of this? 
Now, look, nobody knows but David and Bathsheba that she's pregnant with his son. Nobody. Do you realize that as a result of this, the people of the nation probably said, wow, is David amazing or what? He even takes widows in as part of his harem whose husbands die in wars. I mean, actually, because of his sin, he was probably praised. And if you want to know how, <clears throat> how women thought about him, they loved David. The nation loved David. It tells us that songs were written about him. In fact, there's one song in particular that I've, I keep hoping Chad will write music to. It goes something like this. King Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Put that to music, dude. They sang it in the streets. They sang it as he walked by. They sang it to each other. They sang it as they were brushing their teeth. They sang, sang, sang. They loved David. And now, oh, David, he's such a good man. And nobody would ever know except for God. And it tells us that the Lord was displeased with what David had just done. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David his story. And this is what he says. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own hand, his own plate, and drank from his cup. He cuddled in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for its guest. Oh, David, the man after God's own heart was furious. He was so angry. As surely as the Lord lived, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must replace four lambs to that poor man for the one who stole and for having no pity. And Nathan looked at David and said, you are that man. The story could stop there because maybe you've been in those shoes. But can you imagine what David felt in that moment? Look at... I want to say that I actually believe that David loved God. I think David loved God being his God. I think David loved God even if it wasn't his nation's God. I think David longed to honor God. But there was a moment in time where David honored himself more than God. And look at the destruction that he creates. You are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you as king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and his kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you so much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. Just to keep in context, this is the man that Acts 13, 22 says this is about. And I want to remind you that Acts 13 was written well after David did all these things. In God's mind and his heart, David was a man after his own heart. But here, he doesn't even look like a good human. Can you imagine if a guy who did this came to our church and you knew it? Then David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, 
But the Lord has forgiven you. Who is this God? The Lord has forgiven you. And you won't die for the sin. And you can put in there, but you should. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. Do you ever slow your anxious and frustrated brain down enough to sit and look at the mercy God has shown you and wonder, who is this God that he would forgive a person like me? Everybody in this room, every one of you that has taken the little cup to prepare for communion this morning, every one of you have a public persona and a private persona, every one of us. We, for the most part, are good people. We want to be good people. We want to help the poor. We want to be kind to those who are mistreated. And yes, we struggle with sin when people cut us off in traffic and they deserve us to respond the way we do. The truth is, we also know that inside is a dark heart that we're often tempted to do things that are ugly and maybe the only thing that keeps us from doing them is the public finding out what we're really like or what we really desire. David said to Nathan, the prophet, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I sinned. That's not all he said. In fact, Psalm 51 tells us what he said because he wrote it down for us. And this was David's full thought. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Notice he didn't say because I took Goliath on or I deserve it. But he's falling at the mercy of God's love and compassion. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion and it haunts me day and night. This was written right after talking with Nathan. Against you, God, and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Whoa, I'm not just a sinner because... I'm a dirtbag with Bathsheba and Uriah and, and Eliam. I was born in trouble. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. And yet you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Oh God, purify me from my sins and I'll be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And give me back my joy again. There is... No one more miserable in this life than a Christian out of fellowship with God. If David would not have been caught, I still believe David's heart would have been miserable. Because what he did wasn't just against a couple people that he was close with or that vowed to defend him unto death. David sinned against God and he knew better. He did more than blow it. He was evil. And yet God forgave him. And while I really don't think, Julie and I were kind of debating this this week as we were talking about this morning's message, <clears throat> I honestly think there's not anybody in this room right now that has ever done anything even close to this. You may have committed adultery, but you didn't kill the spouse of the one you were sleeping with. 
You didn't plan deception for a whole nation. You didn't have... This is such a... This is such high-level evil, it's hard to wrap our minds around. I, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but sin is sin. Not to Uriah's dad and mom. Not to the people that loved him. There's a, there's a line that I've shared with you before, and I stole it from a country song. <laughs> and country songs are always right. But it's Jesus always forgives, but a dad doesn't forget. And the truth is, David would live with this shame, and I think it, I think it ruined his, his, his life from this point on, except with God. Except with God. So I tell you this morning, as we go to communion, you know, we always, we always contextualize communion in what we're studying, but I just wanted to go back one Sunday, and we're going to start Romans next week. We're going to stop, talk about what salvation is. But I wanted to take a moment and I wanted to show you a picture this morning of what God's grace really looks like. There's not a person in this room who hasn't done what David did. And maybe yours is worse, maybe. Or maybe it's just as bad. Or maybe it's not as bad. But God offers you and I forgiveness. And if you've never accepted it, today is the day. We call it salvation, but it's really forgiveness. If you know you need to be forgiven... You can just cry out to the Lord like David did and say, please blot my sins. I've sinned against you. Forgive me. But really what I wanted to talk to is Christians. Because as we look at the world and we watch culture going downhill, it's easy for us to say, so, they are so stupid. What is wrong with people? And that's only because we forgot how stupid we are as well. This was a man after God's own heart, right? We love David. Not, not this part. But you know, this doesn't end here. His son rapes his sister, and David doesn't deal with them justly as the king was supposed to deal with them. There's so many parts of this guy's life, but he loved God, and he put his hope in God, and he confessed his sin to God, and he trusted God, and because of that, God forgave him. And I don't know why God forgave him, except that God's grace blows my mind. Blows my mind song Julie's been playing, you're familiar with. Can we just sing a couple verses of it? We'll put it on the screen. Will you sing it with me? Amazing grace How sweet the sound That saved a wretch Like me I Jesus was dying on the cross, he said seven things. 
And all of them were about the needs of the people in the crowds and around him. One of the things that he said on the cross was about a guy dying to the, to, the, to the right of him or to the left of him. One of the guys on the cross, two other people died with Jesus that day. And one was mocking him and the other said, why are you mocking this man? He's done nothing and we're guilty. And that man looked at Jesus and he said, uh, he asked him to remember him when he was in paradise that day. It's an incredible question. But you know what's amazing is one of the theological debates is who was that guy and what did he do? And you know why we ask that question? Because in Scripture, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if he had raped or robbed or stolen or caused an insurrection, because that's not the point. The point is whether you do all of those things or none of those things, without God, you're still under condemnation. You see, the heart is desperately wicked, and Scripture says nobody knows it but God. And yet Jesus Christ came and lived for 33 years. He walked around watching man's inhumanity to man and man's sinfulness. And every time he saw that, it reminded him of why he came. Because there is no saving for us except Jesus Christ's grace that we just sang about. And so, for 33 years, he walked. And he told the disciples, this is my body when they were about to take communion. I want you to understand, I was willing to walk the walk and walk the talk. And I was willing to put the time in because I want you to know, I know what life is like. I know what evil looks like. I know that I was willing to endure it. And I want you to know that despite that, I was willing to go through with it so you could be saved. So David could be called a man after God's heart after the junky stuff he did so that you could be called a man or woman after God's own heart, even despite the junky things you think and you feel and you say, if you have confessed your sin. And so as we move into our communion, we take this bread together to remember that Jesus Christ didn't just float down from heaven, die on a cross and go back up, but he lived among us and he knows exactly what he's dealing with us when he looks at us. Let's take in remembrance of him. Father, we thank you for this little ceremony that you gave us to remind us of grace, to remind us of what you were willing not to put up with, but to forgive. Father, too often we think that our sin is, is ignored. It's not. It was put on Jesus. David's adultery and murdering and disrespect of his friend's daughter taking advantage of, of this woman that saw him as the king and then lying about it, killing her husband. You were willing to forgive that because you love David. Thank you, Father, for loving us as much as you love David and offering us grace and mercy. Lord Jesus, may we never take your grace lightly, but may it rock our world every day that we live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 103 says, the Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sin as far as, as, far as the east is from the west. 
The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him, for he knows how, what? Weak we are. He remembers we're only dust. Do you remember this old song? Will you sing it with us? Grace greater than our sin. Grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous grace of that grace. Join us in taking communion that reminds us of the blood he shed on the cross for our sin. Lord Jesus, we thank you for grace that is as high as the heavens. We thank you that you have separated us and you don't even remember our sin, it says. It says in that text that you don't bring it up and throw it in our face. That you have cleansed us. And so, Lord Jesus, this morning we stand before you pure and holy, not because we took communion or because we go to a church, but because your grace is sufficient to all who call upon the name of the Lord. And so, Father, if there's someone today, whether they're watching online or in this room, that has not accepted your offer of grace, free grace, may today be the day of their forgiveness, their salvation, and their adoption. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Often at the end of our communion times, we have our elders at the door, and uh, they take uh, they take an offering that's, uh, that's for those in our church that are going through difficult times. It's called a benevolence offering. And over the last month or so, we've had lots of opportunities where people in our church family have had needs. So if you're able to participate in that offering with us, we'd appreciate it. If you're not, that's okay too. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Labor Day.